everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Except once in a while, we take a book from the 90s. In our last episode, I was thrilled to be joined by Juan Ponce and uh, Andrew Drillin and Demanda Martini. We got to delve into Uncanny X-Men Minus One, which is a bunch of time travel nonsense. This uh, review today does not connect to those in any way, except that it's another minus one story. This is X-Men Volume 2 Minus One, which is a flashback to the lives of Professor X and Magneto before the X-Men and Brotherhood of Evil Mutants were formed. We'll get there in a few minutes. I am thrilled to welcome three new guests to the podcast today. I'll let each of you introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns and where we might know you from. Tell us a little bit about your work, your relationship to the X-Men. And the question I have as each of you are answering the questions today is, if you were a mutant, would you join the X-Men or the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? Uh, so we're going to begin with uh, with Mr. Joseph Gianpriatro. How are you, Joseph? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, happy to have so, you. <laughs> uh, my name is Joseph Gianpriatro. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I am an artist, um, mostly feature my work on Instagram, uh, at JGM Petro, uh, J-G-I-A-M-P-I-E-T-R-O, not the easiest last name. Um, uh, I have a Patreon as well. Um, but the X-Men for me were, it was kind of like X-Men and Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman happened at the same time. And, uh, it was kind of one of the best years ever. And so they were really my first introduction to superheroes and comics and, um, Rogue and Storm and Catwoman were kind of the reasons I started drawing as a little kid. Uh, a whole gay awakening. Is awesome. <laughs> yes, <indeed. laughs> I was thrilled to meet Joseph when I went to FlameCon. Uh, he was featuring some of his art at his booth. Just beautiful work. Incredible. Uh, well, you're good at a lot of things, but you draw an incredible male nude. <laughs> it's uh, well, very, is, sexy, uh... very sexy artwork. Thank you. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, I, you know, I did the very first flame i've been doing, doing flame con every year and the very first one i had very basic pinups and i saw so many like beautiful beefcake art and i've been doing figure drawing since i was a teenager and it like dawned on me like why am i not combining these two things that i do into one so flame con actually takes the credit for me starting to do really sexy male beefcake pinup type things beautiful beefcake is a is a <laughs> a, a title waiting to happen <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, if you could join the uh, X-Men or the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which one would you choose and why? Uh, I'm going to go with X-Men. I mean, uh, simply because, you know, Rogue and Storm are really my entryway and I was so obsessed with them and I'd want to be friends with them, I think. <laughs> Excellent. It's great to see you, my friend. Uh, you, next, we're going to go over to, well, uh, side note, when I married my husband and he took my last name, he said, I now have the most common name in the United States, Michael Anderson. And I said, no, no, perhaps the most common is John Smith. <laughs> Let me welcome Mr. John Smith to the podcast. How are you, John? Hi, how are you? Um, yeah, that is my real name. And I will say that for as common as everybody says it is, I seem to be the only one ever anyone's ever met. So <laughs> I, but everybody comments on it. Uh, and uh, the only other one I know is my dad. So, cause I'm actually the third. So. Uh, John, give us uh same questions. Where do we know you from uh, gender pronouns and which team would you join? Uh, I'm he, him, but honestly, if you hit anything, it's fine. Uh, just as long as you're talking about me. Uh, but 
he, I, I post a lot, a lot of artwork online uh, on at Vox the Devil. I'm consistent on everywhere because my name is John Smith. You have to be able. I have to have some something something that's Googleable. Um, and uh, my history with the X Men, I like every kid that grew up in the 90s you know i think my intro to them is really the the cartoon uh and then when i was in junior high i read a lot of generation x and that was kind of like my big book and what i really loved and then through high school i kind of fell out of western comics and got really into anime and manga and that was like my entire uh life until like college and then when i was in college i went with my friends back to a comic shop and i had found um i was i was intrigued by the cover of runaways uh which is like one of my favorite comics of all time Love runaways. i had paged through it and it was in that second arc where there's a group of like former teen character or superheroes in like a um in like a support group for each other and chamber was in there and i was like oh chamber's in this i love chamber and then I, that like was me pulling like fully pulling me back out of the 80 or the, the my anime phase into western comics and like uh and like you know what spoiler alert whatever it wasn't actually chamber but visually it was for a while and uh yeah the x-men pulled me back into western comics uh in some in some way shape or form and wonderful yeah we have a, we have nerd roots that run deep and these characters in particular that we attach to your your chamber is my cannonball yeah <laughs> uh which team would you join john mm, so um i mean in reality it would be the x-men because i'm too soft for the brotherhood i'm just not i can't i i, I would feel too guilty about the things that they are doing um, but when I was in college, a friend of mine ran a Marvel role-playing game where we did X-Men and, uh, it was like the way he ran it was that like Magneto and Xavier start the school together and then the split happens. And in that one, my kid, my, my, my character who was basically just Kirby, like he just turned like eight things and turned into them. Uh, he, um, he joined the Brotherhood because those were the like the rough and tumble kids he hung out with. But much like me, when it came time to like set up a bomb or something, he immediately was like, "Oh no, I can't do this. What are you talking about?" And then left and joined the X Men. So <laughs> I also got to meet John at uh, at uh, FlameCon, and we had some lovely conversations. It's wonderful to finally yeah, have great. you on the show, my friend. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. And then uh, lastly, I'm thrilled to invite uh, someone I've followed for a while, but uh, re reconnected with on uh, Twitter a few months ago. But I'm thrilled to uh, welcome Mr. Phil Ewing to the podcast. How are you, Phil? Good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I love your show. So happy to have you. And what a what a high compliment. Uh, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, I am a national security journalist by training, um, and that's what people might know me from. Uh, NPR News was my career for many years. The NPR News Politics Podcast, which some people listen to, I was on for many years. Uh, before that, I had a number of other uh, humdrum jobs in Washington covering defense and national security for Politico and military.com and some other um, outlets. But my real life has always been about comics since I was a little kid. And I love listening to all of your guests 
tell the exact same anecdote, which I also have about watching the X-Men cartoon back in the day and getting into this lifestyle and basically never getting out of it. And the other funny thing to me about it is we all have this donut hole in our kind of late teens and 20s when we kind of try and be too cool for the comics and get out and do something else and be grownups or maybe not. And that something brings us back into it. So I um, have read comic books and drawn comic books and made comic books since I was a kid, since I can remember. And then um, kind of stopped doing that because we became too cool and uh, we were concerned what other people might think. And then uh, when my daughter was born a couple of years ago, and especially in the pandemic, when we were at home locked down and we didn't have anything else to do, one of our big activities was just drawing, just drawing, 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 drawing. And so we got into making comic books of her. We got into making comic books about her characters from her stories that she liked, like the Nancy Drew books. And um, our comic book affinity in our family has never been stronger. So I'm, I've got a stack of Marvel trade paperbacks over here. Um, we've got any number of other uh old back issues and so on that are constantly around the house. Um, I have never been a, I've never been skilled enough to be a published or professional artist, but my family lives with all the downsides of me being artists without any of the upsides. So we have all these art supplies. We have all this paper, we have all this stuff uh, without any of the income or the fame that goes along with being able to get commissions or do covers or any of the rest of that. Uh, same question. Uh, what would you join the X Men or the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? Uh, I would join the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants because most of the time, life in the mansion seems like a huge drag. And uh, depending on which era we're talking about, Professor Xavier is a real slave driver. And as part of our research for this show, I went back and looked at some of the early issues. All the kids call him sir. Uh, they all have a little speech bubble that's like. Uh oh! If I if I Bobby Drake don't form an ice slide and do my trick in the danger room, uh, I'll be kicked out of the X Men, and the professor will never speak to me again. <laughs> and like that's a very tough burden to live with. Whereas if you could be Toad or Destiny or Pyro or any number of other evil mutants, you could just kind of do whatever you wanted. They don't ever succeed, so you don't have to be concerned about them like actually taking over the world or actually destroying humanity you get everything. You get to be a mutant, but you get to live the way you want, and uh, you always live to fight another day. We are in an era of uh, M-gay, will-do-crimes <laughs> kind of a celebration in our lives lately. Uh, wonderful to hear all of uh, a little bit of your backgrounds and stories. I admire the three of you so much for the work you're doing. Uh, I know what it's like to embrace the nerdy parts of ourselves and then equate that with uh, professionals. This podcast has allowed me to own my nerdy side in ways that I never thought uh, I could, and I was 42 when I started it. So it's never too late to uh, to love what you do. Um, so often we're doing the work uh, so to support the things that we love, right? And I, that's my favorite thing about this pod is gathering people who uh, love these parts of themselves and get to make this life. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad. I use he, him pronouns. Everybody knows me here already, but I would join the X-Men. Uh, we're in this era of like Magneto was right. And yes, but also... Uh, I research characters indelibly a few months in advance for Patreon episodes that I'm putting out, or I'll take one character and read their whole chronology. And this isn't going to be out till January, but I'm researching the character Scanner right now, who's one of the acolytes, who's like a really nice person seemingly, and really believes in like the mutant cause. But these terrible leaders keep taking over the team and like smacking her around and like telling her how terrible she is. And like, 
wanting to commit genocide, I feel like that's where I would end up. I'd be the nice guy who would want to join with the revolutionaries and then it would just turn terrible. <laughs> the X-Men, I think there's a much less uh, high body count, even though they don't do everything right all the time. A large part of today's episode is going to be about the philosophies of Professor X and Magneto. It's going to be interesting. We haven't gone here on the in the podcast for a while because Magneto has been out. Of, well, Magneto and Professor X have been out of the 60s books we've been reviewing. But uh, today we're going to take a deep dive into an old story of theirs. Uh, before we get there, let's spend some time just kind of nerding out together. Uh, one of the questions I like to ask new guests, uh, what was the first X-Men book you ever picked up, if you recall? And uh, supplementary question, who is your favorite hero and villain, if you had to choose just one? Let's go in reverse order. We'll go uh, Phil, John, and then uh, and then Joe. Uh, the first X-Men issue I can remember is a X-Men classic reprint from probably the early 90s that repurposed material from the Claremont burn era in the 80s in which the X-Men go to Lincoln Center to see the opera, I think, and they get ambushed by the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, speaking of them, and poor Colossus uh, turns into Colossus but then gets frozen somehow by some kind of weapon or one of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I think, I think, yeah, they freeze him. Pyro's involved, if I'm remembering right. Yes. It's been a minute since I've read that one, but yeah, it's and, scary. Um, I remember it because it was the only one I, because when, when I was a kid and we, this is the other thing that a lot of people I think might be able to identify with, at least I hope so. When I was a kid and I would go to our local comic book store, and this was in the heyday in the 90s, there were huge uh, numbers of back issues, which you could get very cheap, but they were not in chronological order so you would get one and then you'd have no idea how you got to that point of the story and you would have no idea where it went like what happened after that so i think i remember it so clearly because poor kitty pride uh the x-men gets scattered by this attack by the brotherhood of evil mutants colossus is frozen and um she realizes if he turns back to piotr from colossus he'll die because he's in this frozen uh carbonite let's call it and kitty says I bet the Fantastic Four have a beam of some kind that can uh, help Pewtor out of this state that he's in. So she goes to the Baxter building using her phasing powers and tries to get this gizmo and something startles her and she drops it and it is broken. And then that's the end of the issue. And so as a kid, I think it stayed with me for so long because I was like, well, what happened to Kitty, first of all? And then what happened to Colossus? And um, I'm not sure I know the answer even to this day. <laughs> and then since then, it's just been, you know, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of comic books from that era, from the new era. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the, the great thing about those books is they had that tone, which our issue this week also adopted, where the creators kind of break the fourth wall. There's a little bit of a soap opera drama aspect to it, which I think is exactly right for comics and the X-Men. And uh, not all the newer books are able to hit the same note. Um, Do you have a favorite hero and villain that you attach to most? Uh, my favorite X, my favorite member of the X-Men is definitely Storm. Um, mm. I also like Colossus a great deal. And, um, you know, I was, I was really racking my brain because I thought you might ask this question. And villains are much more difficult because the X-Men have so many great villains. Um, what is the name of the guy in God Loves Man Kills? The, uh, like, William, William Stryker. Stryker, the like televangelist preacher. 
who fuck, uh, fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, he he is a very plausible and very scary villain. All the more so because I don't think, at least in those stories, he is a mutant and he's a human who uses uh, the the mass media and disinformation to uh, bring a great deal of harm and distress on the X Men and mutant kind. And uh, that's certainly a cautionary tale for our times. Yeah, much like Bolivar Trask, he's the guy that has the mutant kid and uses that as a reason to hate and kill other mutants. Just blah. yeah, he's a good villain. If you're gonna if, if you're gonna define a villain, that's the way to go. Uh, let's go to John next. Same questions. Um, okay, I'm trying to see if I can remember all the questions. Uh, so first, first book you picked up, and first then book your own up. villain. So, I mean, the first one I clearly really remember picking up is that first issue of Generation X, but with like the chrome cover that's like impossible to decipher. It is so shiny and there's so many lines going on it. It's amazing. Chris, Chris uh, Beckelow art and all the colors kind of run together if I'm remembering yeah. right. Yeah, it's all yeah. brown. Yeah, it's and then like, uh, like M plates right up on the front. And then I think that, you know, it has like, you know, um, uh sink is you know shooting his rainbows all over the place it's, it's just a lot happening all at once because like i really started racking my brain and uh about it because you know like i said i came into it the comics and obviously i watched the movies uh but like i also read a little bit of age of apocalypse when it was happening uh but i was never always i never like collected month to month as a kid uh my big i i hitched my wagon to the archie sonic the hedgehog comics that was my like must read every month um that's who i was as a child and um then then generation x was that kind of first bit and that was like you know like one it's teens it's very 90s edgy so it felt very cool and personal at the time and then also, there's a lot of goofiness in it. Like, that's a comic where Archie, uh, uh, Artie and Leech and Howard the Duck, like, take on huge story arcs for a while. And they go through, like, these weird dreamscapes and stuff like that. So it's also, like, very, like, I know there's there's some funness there to grab onto at, like, a junior high level of, like, I'm not quite developed enough to have to be into, like, these adult comics with these heady topics. Um, we get a we get a special appearance by Howard the Duck in one panel of today's book. We'll get there in a little while. <laughs> uh, and then, do you have uh, a favorite hero and villain? Uh, I mean, hero wise, I so I think theme wise, I've found that because like I've been really jumping into the X Men in recent year now. Like I I've been really diving in and finding out just how much of a depth I have like did not know, um, and. Hero wise, like I think I like any of the characters that are sort of at odds with their bodies. I seem to kind of really glom onto that. That's why I like Chamber. That's why I still find very uh, like he is a character that like like just is his power is a curse in its own right. He does not have a front of his body. Uh, and like villain wise, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna say Beast because. Uh, uh, I he's like not really a villain, but he is kind of now, uh, in the way that these gray lines are. Uh, and like actually, I mean, I think one of the reasons you had stopped and talked to me is I drew this sexy beast art, uh-huh. and he is this, <laughs> and that was like a that there was like this whole argument that I was having with my boyfriend, uh, before because I was trying to figure out what I should get printed for FlameCon, and he was like, "There's going to be a lot of X Men fans there. You should print the beast thing." I was like, "Yeah, but X Men fans are not." 
super pleased with beasts these days. But, and, but pre-blue furry, like yeah. sexy librarian beasts, I am all for it. <laughs> See, and here's the thing. I'm a very large person with big hands and giant feet. And I big like non-hairy beast upsetting to me. I don't uh, like I don't prehensile feet is a upsetting thing without fur to me. Uh but yeah, no, I kind of like I know I'm projecting onto the character, but there's a lot of like self-hatred and like uh in that character that I find very intriguing and complicated and kind of sad and like there's this, this thing of like, oh, I just wish I could make this, like, you could be happy with yourself. But like, I find that like, he grew up in a philosophy that rejects him because he's so into the idea of, um, you know, uh, 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 oh my God, the my brain just completely blocked, uh, uh, blocked out. Uh, assimilation assimilation oh, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 he's so he's so deep into assimilation and his like by something that he did to himself he cannot assimilate he is like the most mutant looking of the mutants you know like uh, i mean obviously there's some mutants in the backgrounds of panels that are like bonkers crazy glob herman has way worse than i also like i love glob too like for same reasons <laughs> This is, uh, when you were talking about mutants who struggle with their own bodies, I think this is from that limited series Spider-Man and the X-Men. It's been a while since I've read it. But there's a scene where I think it's Spider-Man teaching the class about sex education, and Glob Herman raises his hand and says, what if you don't have genitals? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <so> yeah. <laughs> uh, fantastic, John. Thank you. And then let's go to Joseph next. Same questions. Uh, so, you know, my entry into X-Men was the animated series, like a lot of people. Um, I somehow watched the very first episode. It was the first thing I saw. So I think a lot of my friends had the trading cards. So I knew to like, I knew what they were. So I knew to watch it. Um, but sorry, what else did you want to know? Uh, <laughs> One of my favorites, right? Yeah. Favorite. Uh -huh. Sorry about that. Uh, oh, I if I had to pick my favorite X-Men, it's, it's got to be Rogue. Um, in that first episode, <clears throat> when her and Storm are shopping the mall, she has that hot pink dress on and... Uh, Storm sort of like speechifies and turns into her costume and Rogue just turns to her and says lighten up on the speech of sugar and that was immediately I just thought that's my person um, Olin Orzan we love you the voice of Rogue <laughs> I mean I still I mean I've been reading comics for 30 years and I hear that voice every time I read Rogue um, and I just think I love the story of like on the surface this like pretty fun girl who just couldn't be intimate, couldn't have the love that she wanted. There's something very kind of poetic about that um, that I enjoyed. Um, and I think you asked, like, what was our first, like, comics I think you had asked before, which was, for me, I would go to, like, Borders in town, and they had a tower of comics, and I would always get, I think it was called X-Men Adventures, which were, like, the comic adaptations of the series. So I would just go and buy any of the issues that had Rogue on the cover. Um, so she is it for me. Uh, and I would say my favorite villain is Mystique. I just, uh, she's kind of a drag queen and she's just, I love the <laughs> level of bitchiness and self-serving attitude. And I just like that you never know what you're gonna get from her even when you think you understand like sort of where she's coming from. She kind of twists and turns. And uh, I actually really enjoy what they're doing with her now and with her and Destiny being back. So I'm happy to see that she has such a spotlight.
I'm excited to see where they're going to go with her in Immortal X-Men. If you guys are reading the current books, there's some cool stuff being seeded or plotted over time. Uh, excellent answers all. The X-Men has been spanning and running for 60 years. The franchise has expanded. There's so many obscure spaces uh, and people latch on to different people in different spaces. One of the most surprising, uh, Joseph, picking up on what you just said, one of the most surprising things they've ever done in the X-Men to me was picking up Rogue in the first place. She's like a villain from the Avengers uh, and then suddenly brought in with this big white streak through her hair and this bizarre costume. And then they make her one of the most beloved characters of all time in the franchise. And I love when books take characters and make me care about them. Uh, that's that's one of my favorite things as a comic book nerd. Uh, so I want to focus a little bit on each of your professions, if we can. And we'll start with John here. Uh, tell us a little bit about your art style, uh, what you're doing with your art, and maybe what some of your aspirations are. I think your work is incredible. Uh, on your website, you have the comic book alone, which is wonderful. And I've seen some of your, your prints and work. I got to look at it uh, and pick up some of it when I was at FlameCon. Uh, it's unique and incredible. I really, really love Thank your you. style. So yeah, tell us a Thank little you. bit about your work, man. Yeah, I mean, so I obviously, you know, grew up on comics, cartoons, anime, was obsessed with them as a kid. And that all kind of feeds into my art. I think like a lot of artists in the digital space these days. Uh, and, you know, I recently put out a comic called Alone. I mean, I did it about a year ago now, actually. Uh, it's a little short story, a little spooky. If you want to, uh, actually, this will be coming out after Halloween. So if you want to get back, to have those feelings again, go back and read my little comic. <laughs> it's free on the internet. Um, and yeah, I mean, I love to, with my own like standard illustration, like standalone illustrations i like to try to put as much story and world into those as possible and really try to get a feeling of grandeur in just these one image one image and then you know i also you know get into some of the fan art sometimes and draw sexy beasts and <laughs> um yeah, I mean, what I'm doing with my art, you know, I want I wanted to do comics forever, and I was always kind of too afraid to, and I've been kind of going through this huge journey in the last like year or two, dealing with my anxiety, treating all of that, and uh, I'm at this point now. I found this like level with my art where I feel very good about it, and I, you know, I used to be very frustrated with my art and uh, drawing was a very difficult process for me and I was very in my head and very mad at myself all the time and I finally have kind of given that up and I've kind of learned to trust the process a lot more uh and I've stopped viewing the image in my head that I first have when I start as like the fi the final goal and now that I think of that as, oh, that's just the first sketch. And it's more about exploring. I forget exactly where I heard it. And I wish I had, I could remember because it kind of was life-changing for me. <laughs> so I wish I could remember who said it. But somebody somewhere was saying that like, you know, as children, we all love drawing. All kids love drawing. And, you know, at some point we, uh, either stop or we start like we, we, we either are discouraged and we don't draw anymore or it stops being this point of exploration for us and it starts about refining refining a craft we get we get distracted by life it's not cool any longer to do yeah. things like yeah yeah 
Yeah. And for like, for me, like I just got very into, I have to be as good as I can be. I have to be as good as I can be. I have to, and I kind of forgot and lost that joy of just kind of messing around and seeing what happens. And I think I've kind of really embraced that again. And now art for me is not a, like a means to an end. It's just like, oh, it's exploration now. Like it is okay if it doesn't come out exactly as I had wanted and that's fine. And in the end, I get it somewhere, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, there's an idea of like perfectionism and what it has to be. My, my 10 year old, uh, my, my child, I don't use my kid's name on the pod, but my 10 year old uh, is a huge artist and storyteller. And I'll see them try to focus on one particular image. And if they get a line wrong, I just wad up the paper and throw it away and not want to try anymore. And I'm really working on like sometimes you got to not sometimes generally you need to practice for a while first draw the figure from lots of angles i've been showing uh, showing them uh, professional artists and how they do character guides before they ever start their stories mm -hmm. uh it's 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 crucial it's a lot to let go of what are some of your aspirations as an artist john uh i mean i want to keep you know i i'm an artist in my professional life i'm a graphic designer and illustrator and i work kind of in the uh advertising uh world pr what have you uh but that is very much you know just my how i support my life uh but you know i i think i used to think that like oh you know one day i'll draw comics and i'll be able to put that out there and that'll be my life and now i'm kind of hit that zen point of like it's fine i can just keep making the things i want on the side and have fun with that and people might enjoy it that's great um and you know i'm stable with my like so I don't know if I feel like breaking into the comic world like listen don't if you want to if you if you're hearing this and you're like we should give this guy an opportunity give it to me please but uh it's not like something that's eating me up inside anymore you know uh I you're not myself yeah I was gonna say you're not your mute but you're good um <laughs> but um but you know I think in general like I want to just create things that make people happy if whether that's like children's books which i keep on my boyfriend's a writer and also an extremely creative person and we're constantly bouncing stuff off of each other and working on projects you know um i just want to make as many things as i can i want to make more stories i i want to do more stories like alone i have you know some bigger um comic like comic comic story arcs ideas that I really want to work on and put out into to the world uh but they're like you know it's that thing of like getting started is the hardest part because getting started is so terrifying <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah um so yeah let me take some that. of those let me take some of those same questions to Joseph whose whose art style is very very different uh your 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 way of mixing what I might call classic pencil uh, your way of drawing uh, nudes or the human form or uh, uh, kind of capturing the beauty in black and white of, of still life is incredible. But you also have this ability to do cartoony, techie, crazy stuff. It's it's really it's really wonderful. Walking by your booth initially, I was like, oh, wow, this is this is incredible stuff. Uh, tell us a little bit about your your professional journey and some of your aspirations as an artist. Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I started drawing as a very young kid, and luckily my parents really encouraged it. Uh, so I was, you know, put into, you know, I took classes and, you know, I was sort of the art nerd in high school and did all the AP art classes and things like that. Um, and I went to Parsons. Um, so I really did study like the more fine art. Um, I've been doing like figure drawings with pencil since I was like 16. 
So that is kind of, I think you see that influence. And when I draw comic book pinups, um, my style is, I hate to use the word realistic, but I don't know a better term, but like I try to make them look like real humans as much as I'm able to. Um, so it really has combined my love of comics with sort of my training and um, loving to do figure drawings, which I do every single week. Um, my education, I actually uh, was a menswear designer. So sometimes there's a little bit of an influence of like that sort of fashion design aesthetic sometimes to some of my characters. Or when I draw the costumes, I kind of try to add realistic elements so they look like functioning clothes because uh, that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Um, and, you know, I this is definitely a side hustle for me. This is, uh, I would just categorize myself as a fan artist. Um, you know, I love selling prints and having a Patreon and things like that. Um, I don't think my style would be possible as a comic. I think I would exhaust myself. It's just not, it would never look how I would want it to look. So, you know, I think one day I would love to do com uh, covers. That's sort of where I see my work fitting the best. Sure. Not something I've ever pursued, but I would love to do comic covers one day or some sort of pinups. They don't really do pinups like they did when we were kids. I was going to say, you might you might almost describe it more as pinup than sequential, yeah. if that's yeah, a way to yeah. phrase it. Sure. Yeah, I can't do sequential. I did like one little story in a fanzine and I wanted to die. Like it was just, <laughs> it's just like, it's just never going to look how I want it to look in the time frame. So, you know, we got to pick our strengths. But yeah, you know, pinups or... Uh, I you know, I really loved like the old school Marvel swimsuit pinup. And so every kind of summer I have a bunch of like, you know, I did, I started with like North star and then I did Iceman and Colossus. So I love to do something like that. I would love to bring back that book one day of those really fun swimsuit uh, pinup covers. Absolutely. Uh, if you, if you heard my interview with June Brigman, we talk about this image she drew of like the X-Men running down the beach. And she's like, the editors told me pick some X-Men boys and we want to see their butts. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic interview. It makes me happy every time I think of it. We're overdue for it. <laughs> uh, if I were to compare the two of your art styles, I think John's is really likely to make you smile and Joseph's is really likely to turn you on. <laughs> well, uh, I will accept that. Although I will say, I uh, John brought up his B sketch and I saw that and I had such Ooh. conflicting feelings of like, I love this drawing, but also I freaking hate beast so it was a very mixed feeling of like this is so good but also he is a psychopath <laughs> yeah not not universal either way both of your art can make me smile and turn me on <laughs> in my defense while i was drawing it i was picturing this person that would not like i was like this is my version of him that isn't deeply like fucked up basically <laughs> <laughs> is a monster person who yeah like, yeah like, like 60s beast in his room shirtless with a pair of glasses and, and like blue line sweatpants and he's sitting on the floor reading a book while drawing on the chalkboard with his toes like that's that's it's <laughs> classic that's my favorite version of beast <laughs> uh and then let's go over to phil now phil you're not i mean you like to you like to do art but uh you have a keen political analytical mind in a way that fascinates me. When I've listened to some of your interviews or read some of your content, uh, in a way, my brain does not work in the way yours does. And I'm so impressed by the type of work you do. Tell us a little bit, if you're willing to, about some of your journey uh, through kind of politics and reporting and what you like to focus on. Uh, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit when we get into nerd philosophy today <laughs> during the issue. I hope that's all right. Uh, well, thank you for saying that, but I, I, I would probably want to trade places with you guys. Just, just listening to you talk about your your discipline in this craft. Um, 
the uh, the thing that came uh, out of reading comics as a kid was an awareness comparing what I was able to produce with what was professionally viable and concluding that that was not a path that I could pursue you know it's kind of like it's kind of like liking to dance but wanting to be a dancer those are two there's two very different disciplines involved with that um when i was a grad student what i thought i wanted to do was become a statehouse correspondent covering governors and state legislatures and things like that and being close to uh politicians and decision making at that level when i came to washington the job i could find was covering the navy and um, it just turned into a Washington defense political uh, Congress Pentagon career, which uh, ha- which ha- has had its ups and downs its- and twists and turns. Sure. Um, but the uh, the great thing about it is it the scale of it never stops being important. Uh, the consequences never stop being as grave as you want. And the magnitude of it never gets very small. You know, you're talking about one of the biggest slices of the uh, budget that the government passes every year. It affects all 50 states. It affects the entire world. And so to have a career where you can kind of be in the front row and be like, here's why they're doing this or have an opportunity to explain to people, you're seeing this on the news and here's why it's taking place um, has been neat at times. Other times it's been a little bit stressful. I mean, we don't have to delve into it, but even the last eight years of American politics have been unlike anything else, but you go back 20 years and it's, it's even more insane. What are the areas that you enjoy most kind of fascinating on with, with this analytical mind or your ability to put things together? What, what do you, what do you enjoy most? What, what I like personally about it is being able to scale up and down in storytelling for audiences. Like you're looking at a, a Google maps thing and you click on a link and you see the North American continent and if you want to, you can fly all the way down to a specific city block in Chicago and see where the shadows fall and what is across the street from what and where people go and so on. And that's the way the National Defense Enterprise works. Again, from depending on how you slice it, one of the biggest chunks of money that the government spends, you can zoom all the way down on an individual soldier in Afghanistan carrying a specific rifle. Why does he have that rifle? What was the bid process that went into selecting it? Why did they choose a 5.56 round instead of a 7.62 round? What do people think about the companies that put in those bids? What were the congressional dynamics as members of Congress fought over which company was going to get the contract to build that rifle? So you can you can fly up and down in the columns of stuff in this world, the national defense, in a way uh, that I think is fascinating and which a lot of people don't understand. And yeah, so, where most people just see an image, you see a piece of a puzzle you, and you and you attach it to these other pieces that you've collected in other places. And being able to assemble that map must be fascinating. I'm a, I'm a storyteller, so I do that to a certain extent, but not, not in the way that you do. I'm so fascinated. I mean, ideally what you're doing, well, the, in, the, in reality, what you're doing is standing outside an aquarium because you're an outsider. You're not in the room with people making decisions. You can see what they say publicly uh, when they're on TV, when they're interacting with you. Um, but then your job is to say, well, I saw this orange fish swim over to this blue fish and they had a conversation. And then all of a sudden, uh, Boeing got a contract to build a new uh, ballistic missile. And it's like, well, what what do we think happened that led one thing to lead to the other thing? And um, you 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 have to learn to do that because, to your point about storytelling, a lot of times parts of the story are missing, and so you have to be able to tell people, um, here's how it took place in the past, 
especially with intelligence work. There's a lot of things uh, on foreign agents operating in the United States or the way the Russian intelligence services have been working in this country and in Europe for the past several years with the 2016 election and the 2020 election. And you have to be able to say, well, I don't know specifically what took place this most recent time, but the five previous times when a foreign agent has been involved, here's what happened, or here's what the FBI did, or here's what the outcome was of that story. And um, especially when you're talking about it on the radio or on TV, then you can kind of draw people a map and say, here's what I think went into this, or here's where I think this story is going to go. That's the ideal outcome if you're the doing close, job, right? The closest thing I've done is I made a documentary once where I'm interviewing people and putting pieces together. And it was an old, it was an old crime story. It's Dog Valley. If anybody ever wants to go see, you can find it on iTunes. Uh, but weaving together this narrative with competing pieces. And you just feel these pieces of you come alive as you assemble the structure. It's a fascinating thing. But doing that full time is uh, is something else. Phil, I'm just getting to know you. But when you when you go into work mode, I'm sensing this like this face and this demeanor come on. And then we switch to the expert and you get giddy and <laughs> a big smile comes on your face. It's uh, it's fun watching these sides of you come together already. Completely inadvertent. And, you know, I was also thinking, listening to you guys talk about how um, when you want to draw a whole comic book page, how much more like work it seems. Like, you know, we could all sit down and like noodle out Rogue or noodle out Jean in the green dress from the 60s with her mask <laughs> and her boots and her hair. And frankly, that sounds like fantastic fun. But when you have an 11 by 17 sheet of Bristol board with those blue marks that are the only thing that's on it, and you have to draw panels and you have to think from your own script or from the script that you're working from, okay, Jean has three panels where she has to talk to Scott, and then there's an explosion, and then uh, it's um, Juggernaut, and Juggernaut has a awesome like line that he says, and then Juggernaut punches Scott and knocks him across the room. Like that is work <laughs> by the yeah. time you get to the bottom of that, because you can't just kind of goof around and rough it out for your own enjoyment. You have to draw if you're doing it at the level that we expect to see it from these comic books we all read. You have to draw every single leaf on the tree behind Scott in the first panel when he's listening to Gene. Then you draw the second panel and it's like, man, do uh, <laughs> you want to talk about work mode? The great thing is these days, um, a lot of that is available basically for free and you can watch. I, I'm amazed in thinking about doing this today, uh, coming up as a young person, being able to watch on YouTube. You can watch Jim Lee sit down and draw a comics page or yeah, draw yeah. a whole character sketch in a way that just did not exist when some of us were younger and we were trying to do this and trying to figure out like, man, I just spilled ink all over my board or like what like what brush I have number five, but I need a number seven to make the, the right line. You can it's sit down a... and Aaron Lepresti will sit there and do a, do a page. Terry Dotson and Rachel Dotson will like take their whole art process for you on Instagram or on YouTube. And like, you still gotta be as good as they are to be viable. Like if you want to play at their level, there's no disputing the amount of dedication and skill that's required, but you could also see them do it in a way that didn't used to be possible. Absolutely. And so it's, it's, I don't know whether that's, I would be interested to ask like the kids of today who are nine and 10 and 11 want to do this, whether they find it more or less intimidating to see that, to see that engagement. Um, but it, at least it, at least it's there in a way that just didn't used to exist. Uh, well, John or John or Phil, uh, excuse me, Joseph. Do either of you want to comment on that? 
Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, um, I keep accidentally remuting myself. Uh, I know, uh, for like my point of view, I mean, even as an adult, like I am constantly watching people's process videos and stuff like that to pick up new tips. Cause you know, I, I'm a big believer of like, you can always be better. Um, and but um uh yeah i'm really excited to see what like you know i have a niece who's now 12 and she's starting to get into art and stuff like that and uh i mean she's always been a lo love drawing but now she's starting to be a little bit more serious about it and you know i think you know i spent a lot of my 20s looking at wacomb antiques online and wishing i could have one you know and now iPads like I have a Cintiq that I've had for a decade now basically and I don't touch it because it's all iPad art now because it's just so everything's so accessible in a way that it's never been before and I can only imagine it's going to hone skills so much uh, I mean I taught myself using Photoshop and stuff in high school you know that I bootlegged don't sue me Adobe I'm sorry I pay for it now um but uh and you know and because i saw like some fan art some like sonic fan art online i was just like i want to be able to do that and then i was like using a mouse and keyboard and now you can have the apple pencil like are you kidding me uh i'm so excited for these kids it's never been easier and never been harder i think uh you can get more stuff like putting a podcast out for example has never been easier you buy a mic and, and upload it right but also there's more competition and yes. more there there's uh more uh difficult ways in which you have to advertise and market and put yourself out there so i i think it's i think it's easier but also more saturated because there's so many people uh joseph go ahead yeah well um you know i, I love watching specifically like traditional who artists who do traditional type of drawings work like i i have a friend who like inks his own book and i'm like amazed to watch someone do that whole process it's very inspiring and i love to just try to pick up different things from people but i think yeah we're so lucky to have an ipad now that i can do everything on um and i'm actually a college professor uh full-time that's what my career is so like i get to see young adults sort of discover these new things and to see them come into classes knowing so much more than I did at their age and already having sort of a leg up. Yes, there's more competition, but I also think that they have, they've had so much more access to things than we had. And it's really interesting to see, um, they come to class knowing things that I don't know. And it's uh, this nice sort of process of learning from each other in a way. Yeah. yeah. In my, in my previous life, when I was a photojournalist, occasionally you would, you would learn that you were using the same camera as a famous photographer. And on the one hand, you would be like, wow, this is awesome. And then you would be like, uh-oh, it's not, it's not us. <laughs> like it's it's not the it's not the equipment that is making the thing. And um it's it's uh it's it's humbling and intimidating to be able to see that um and be a be an amateur practitioner, but then also be able to see like here's Jen Bartel's like She-Hulk cover sure, that yeah, she yeah. did that she did. And she has, here's her, here's her iPad and here's her, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry the listeners can't see me do this, my little props. Here's my <laughs> Apple Pencil and here's my iPad. Like, I have the same tools that she has, except her, hers is a quite a bit more successful than anything that I could have done. Um, I think we, this don't, we don't see them spending hours and hours a day perfecting it, you know? Absolutely. It's, there's so yeah. much that goes into, you know, 
uh, someone will say, oh, how did you draw that? How do you, you know, how did you get it to look like that? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I do this all day long. Like, it's just, it, it, you don't, you, you see these beautiful pieces and you think, oh, they're talented. And yes, they are, but they've also spent a lifetime sort of perfecting what they're doing. So to make, like Jen's art looks so effortless. And yet I know that that is not at all effortless. There's so much skill in that. But yet she makes it look like she busted that out in 10 minutes. I also love that there's a million ways to draw. There's a million ways to color and to put it all together uh, with different styles and characters. You can see the character She-Hulk in a thousand ways by a thousand people, but you still know it's her. Yeah, I love I love comparing Chris Bacalo to Wills Portacio, you know, as, as an example. I think it's incredible to look at the different ways things are done. And I'm a big believer that like, you know, I think a lot of people who like will come up to me or uh, I'm sure every other has this too, where they are just like, where people will come up and be like, well, I can't draw. And you're like, you can, you can draw, you did draw. Cause like I said earlier, like when we're kids, we all draw, we all love doing it. And then like the difference is that like in fifth grade, someone like a authority figure of some sort looked at me and was just like, oh, you're pretty good at this. And I was just like, well, now I'm dedicating my life to this. This is now how I attach my self-value to, and I will, I can't stop doing it now. Uh, like that's the difference. Like that is truly it. And I think it's just a matter of like, if you really want to draw, like you can learn it's, it's all motor skills and learning how things sh like shape works and stuff like that. It, it's all very possible. I think anybody can do it. It's great. So I think, I think we'll take this spot to transition. My One of my favorite things about this podcast is assembling groups of people who don't know each other and like becoming friends and uh, developing just like a particular energy. Every episode's a little different, but there's this common thread of uh, people with the same passions coming together. And I'm, I'm, I'm so valuing uh, everything that's happening here. Uh, we're going to be reviewing X-Men number minus one today. This is from July 1997. Last episode, I talked a little bit about the flashback month where we had every book replaced by a minus one issue that was set in the pre-60s continuity. Uh, this is a, a, a story called I Had a Dream, which is, of course, a reference to the Martin Luther King speech. So often people uh, associ associate Professor X and Magneto with uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X with differing philosophies. But as we've covered on the pod a little bit, Chris Claremont's vision of these characters was not associated with the civil rights movement, but more with the formation of Israel, where his portrayal of Professor X was based on David Ben-Gurion and his portrayal of Magneto was based on Menachem Begin. Go listen to the first episode of the trial of Magneto that we did if you'd like more information on that, where I cover those people in more depth. Uh, this is uh, this is written by Scott Lobdell. Uh, the art is by Carlos Pacheco and Art Thibbert with uh, uh, colors by Chris Lickner and Aaron Larson, and, or excuse me, Aaron Lucen and uh, uh, Richard Starkings of Comicraft on letters. Uh, I'm not going to give bios on any of those people because we'll get to them in the books, assuming this podcast is around in 10 years when we finally <laughs> get into new decades. Uh, I want to cover just a little bit of context quickly. The research for an issue like this is actually quite extensive. One of the issues most referenced here is Uncanny X-Men number 309, which tells a lot of the prehistory of Charles Xavier's connector, a connection to the Acolytes character, Amelia Vogt, who is a redheaded woman who has the power of teleportation through smoke. She's going to show up here. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of context. In putting all this together, I'm not going to give the resources here, but feel free to message me if you want some of this. Uh, Professor X, we know, grew up in the home, uh, in a privileged home, 
his father died. His mother married the father of Juggernaut. Then he died, and then his mother died as well. So uh, Xavier went on to uh, kind of inherit his family's entire billion-dollar industry and estate. Uh, he went to school. He became renowned as, in some ways, a geneticist and an, an analyst. He had a number of adventures around the globe as kind of an Indiana Jonesy kind of guy. Uh, eventually, he fought Lucifer in Tibet and lost the use of his legs. After that is when he uh, had the adventures. I think it's Uncanny X Men one sixty eight, where uh, Chris Claremont gives us a backstory of he and Magneto uh, getting to know each other. This is where Gabriel Holler comes in. Xavier fathers the kid David, uh, who becomes Legion. Uh, and then he goes on to form the X-Men. So I'm summing up a lot of stuff very quickly there. Magneto, realized, uh, uh, meanwhile, was born years before Xavier, grew up in concentration camps where he saw his entire family die. His daughter died after the war. When his powers activated, his wife ran away. He spent a number of uh, years kind of on his own because we have to match the timelines up at a particular point. But then he's serving the Jewish people. He and Xavier become close friends. Uh, and eventually there's a falling out, which ironically is over Nazis because Baron Strucker gets involved. And the two of them have very different ideas about what the future for mutantkind could look like. Now, in more recent continuity, we have the Moira McTaggart stuff. Moira is a character, for those who are unfamiliar, who has recently been revealed to have lived nine lives before this one. And in each life, she has seen the world go dark for mutants in various ways. She's allied herself with Xavier and Magneto and Apocalypse. And she's seen things always end poorly. And the big giant retcon here is that before Xavier and Magneto ever met, Moira revealed to Charles that she had lived these other lives. We don't know exactly what she showed him, but he has all this information about what the future potential of mutants could look like. She then has uh, Charles and she and Charles then reach out to Magneto and give him the same type of information. So part of the dividing philosophy of their dreams is they are both trying to preserve mutants because they've seen all these futures in other timelines where Moira lived, where things end very badly for mutants. And they both have a very different idea about what these potential futures can look like. So it's a really interesting thing. We, we, uh, we have to add that to the context of this issue. Uh, we can delve into that a little bit. I want to focus more on the content of this issue specifically, but there's a lot to the history of these characters uh, that's really indelible to what the X-Men are and what they represent, because it's largely built around the differing dreams of Xavier and Magneto, the way it was set up in the 1960s and then reinterpreted by Claremont in the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s. Now, Claremont's the one that gave Magneto the backstory, connect the connection to the concentration camps. This book was written in 1997, and we're going to see some allusion to that here. In the uh, mid uh, mid 2000-aughts is when we got that Magneto Testament storyline that goes back and shows what actually happened to uh, Magneto in those. Magneto's real name is Max Eisenhart. In this issue, he's using the name uh, Eric, uh, which is something he used for a long time, Eric Lenscher, which is also the name Ian McKellen uses in the movies. So there's a lot of dense history very quickly kind of setting up the philosophies of this issue. And there's a lot of stuff you could pick up if you want to learn more. Before we even delve into this issue, will any of the guests have commentary on all of the information I just presented briefly? I wasn't even thinking about the Moira and what's happening now, honestly, when I read it. Uh, so that kind of maybe changes some of the context a little bit. Uh, that didn't even cross my mind, honestly. I kind of forget that like our current X-Men stories are impacting the past and like 
it takes a minute. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jonathan Hickman, when he gave this Moira revelation, I think he worked very hard to make sure it would fit because it's a big bomb. It's it's you're watching 60 seasons of a, a television show. And in season 60, they're like, oh, by the way, let's change the way you saw this all the way from the beginning. And he did a pretty good job because it didn't mess things up. Uh, it just adds a lot of contextualization and complexity. I, mean, I guess the only thing that I would add is that before we get into talking about this issue, um, it's worth telling people that there's some pretty dramatic shifts in tone over the course of this comic book. Mm-hmm. And there's some subject matter that we're going to have to deal with that requires us to deal with hilarious 60s kind of throwback pastiche at the same time we deal with the most serious and consequential events of the 20th century in the same like 10 page span. And so I guess I just want to caution people ahead of time. Um, if I, or we like have a kind of weird corner that we have to turn and then turn back again, uh, you'll understand why over the course of this book. And, um, it's just weird. It's, it's a little bit different from some of the other issues that have been on the show and some of the other issues that we remember, uh, from the X-Men just kind of generally over the course of its, you know, many years of continuity. Phil, I promise to have you back for a 60s nonsense book. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I Thank you. I hope that's the case. It just kind of reminds me of that Futurama joke of the uh, about Mash, where the robot's like turning himself on from like jokes to like solemnness very quickly. I just saw that episode for the first time. <laughs> um, Futurama great, got good good jokes. Um, I, my husband's been trying to get me into Futurama for years. And I'm like, fine, let's watch. And now I like it. We just started. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, going off of like the Moira stuff, like, um, you know, I would say that jumping into Hawks Pox and all of that has been my like real jumping on point to the X-Men. Cause like I said, I dabbled and then I was, I was a lot of the stuff I was dealing with, you know, when I was younger was side stuff. Like I didn't, I've never, I didn't read any of Claremont when I was young, you know, I didn't. And so I just didn't have that. Uh, and now when I go back and look at older stuff uh, for me, it doesn't like, I don't know. It's just, I, I can shut off the part of my brain that is like, well, how does like the Moira of it all fit into this? Which is like, well, it, I mean, it honestly didn't because it is a record. Like it just didn't, it's fine. And like, we can pretend like we, we can't, like it is fun to noodle, but also like, it's never going to be a perfect, it's not going to be a jigsaw puzzle that perfectly fits together. It's always going to be like a little, like one of the little edges is a little bent and you're like, oh, okay. And you just kind of jam it in there. And I and I love how these guys at the time they were doing this were so conscious of that too because I was looking at uh, some X Men trades to prepare for this episode and in the one of the Phoenix trades in the eighties, Kurt, Kurt Busiek has this great introduction in which he's like, "Look, on the one hand, it was my idea to bring Gene back from the dead, but I didn't uh, tell Marvel to do it, so they're the ones who heard." third hand that I had come up with this pitch for the storyline where she recovers in her cocoon in Jamaica Bay. Yes, I did think of that, but I'm not the one who made Jim Shooter tell me to write the actual books in which, in which that takes place. So like, even in real time, these guys were like, uh, okay, I mean, we could do it that way. And like, you know, it's a comic book. Um, on the subject of like the, the, the discipline that's required to do this, and the reason why we love them so much is 
you've got a bunch of hack creators who are trying to get out 24 pages, 26 pages, and then like get to the next one. And so at no time are they sitting down and plotting out like in 30 years when people are talking about this storyline, are all the puzzle pieces going to fit together perfectly? It's like, no, I need to get this issue done and then I'll have enough money to pay my rent. And then I will think, what is the story going to be in the following issue? There's a lot of toys in the toy box and a lot of people playing with them over time. Yeah. Absolutely. And not everything fits, but it does, it does fit pretty well here, I think. And the idea of, uh, the idea of going back and adding early context is something everybody wants to do. We want to go back and flesh things out. Ironically on the Kurt Busiek, uh, if you guys are following the Patreon at all, I just put an, out, out, out an episode on the Engarai with Ariana Mar, the, the letterer. And we review <laughs> in a letter that Kurt Busiek wrote in uh, during Claremont's run that was like, you killed, gene and i'm never buying your book again fuck you guys <laughs> so the, <laughs> the counter context of he's the one that suggested her return is adorable <laughs> um so let's go ahead and jump in on our cover here we get oh well i do need to cover one bit of prehistory very quickly again we won't bring this up during the pod because we've covered it a number of times magneto saved pietra and wando Piet, pietro and wanda from a human mob in transia they were on his early Brotherhood of Evil Mutants for a period of time. They left and joined the Avengers. Years later, they learned he was their dad, but then it turns out he wasn't. We're not going to delve into that today, but we will see Pietro and Wanda in in, uh, in this issue during a time when they did not know Magneto was their dad, but when the writers were writing, it still was continuity that he was their dad. So there's some interesting stuff there as well. Okay, on the cover of this book, we get the flashback. The, uh, the corner box has Professor X, Pietro, Wanda, and Magneto all kind of mashed in together. We get a giant Magneto in the forefront uh, raging. He is all biceps and thighs, and I am here for it. Uh, Professor X is falling out of his wheelchair behind, and weirdly, there's kind of a Moira McTaggart figure. I don't know if it's supposed to be Amelia Vote, but it looks like Moira to me, but she's not in the issue at all. There's a kind of a funny moment if you look very closely on the bottom right, where Art Thibbert has signed his characteristic kind of exclamation point with his initials and then underneath you have to turn it sideways it says carlos pacheco with all due respect i don't know what's going on there was art trying to claim credit for the cover and then carlos says no it was me actually uh but uh carlos pacheco is one of my one of my favorite artists on page one we get bastion this is what's happening in the current 90s books we're breaking away bastion summarized in 10 seconds or less is the siege perilous combination of master mold and nimrod reborn in a robot form and he's been a big foe of the X-Men for a long time. We won't get there. The only in the 60s books, the only character we've met out of that mess is Master Mold. Don't worry about it right now. Uh, Professor X is also in jail. Again, don't worry about it. We cut back to Stan Lee, who's working in the Marvel offices. Uh, he is uh, <laughs> he is interacting with Carlos Pacheco and other people. Spider-Man is there. Howard the Duck walks through. It's a lot of chaos. There's a full page of Stanley narrating about the X-Men and how they started out as kind of his original team and have multiplied into way too many characters. He compares them to, I might, I might as well have created a bunch of rabbits. There's good mutants and bad mutants and bad mutants they used to be good and good mutants they used to be bad. And anyway, we get this, that's the flashback month thing. Stanley was there for a couple pages for all these books as the narrator. He was much more annoying in the episode we reviewed last time <laughs> where I, I described his portrayal there as rather punchable. And then we get to the splash page. We get this gorgeous image of a very, very fit buff Charles Xavier. Like, hello, Charles, in his little black mankini briefs floating in space. Uh, he looks good. I never really think of uh, Professor X as being super buff, but he is ripped here. He's like 5% body fat. Uh, my word, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be happily hear all of your thirsty thoughts. 
Uh, and the narration boxes are talking about how Professor Exeter Charles, when his powers developed and he got overwhelmed by people's inner voices and thoughts, he found a way to hide from them in this kind of secret sanctum inside of his mind. I assume that this is the void in which he stuffs all of his moral complexities in the future. <laughs> Anytime he does something unethical, he just shoves it in this void. But it's kind of this interesting idea of him going to this place of peace to avoid all of the telepathic chaos. Uh, he is, it turns out, he's lost the use of his legs here. And this is also the space where he goes to find peace. He is floating in a pool. Uh, Amelia Vote. this is during the time when she is taking care of him. She's a wonderful character that we'll talk more about on the pod in the future. Uh, comes out to kind of check on him and uh, says, hey, we got to get going, basically, is where we begin this book. Uh, so let me hear from the panel. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on how sexy Charles looks here <laughs> and, uh, and the intro to this book? I mean, uh, I'll, I'll go first if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, one, like full on Dr. Manhattan, Charles Xavier, like he's got the little briefs and everything bald floating through space. And like, I find ripped Charles Xavier to be very funny because the idea of him putting the time he needs to in the gym to be that ripped and buffed, like it, he's like fully dehyd, like that like dehydrated shot of 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 uh, Hugh Jackman jumping out of the tank in the X Men in the Wolverine movie. Like it is that level of like fitness uh, that is. Um, I just can't imagine the character actually putting in that work. <laughs> It looks and, like it looks like a Joseph Jean Pietro drawing, except it's Professor X. Yeah. <laughs> this is the first I, time I've considered drawing Charles, if I'm being honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but I uh, maybe he's just making us think he's buff. <laughs> he has that power; he can influence your mind. But imagine if Patrick Stewart was that ripped, Oof. right? Like. I just, I can't, I can't see Patrick Stewart doing it. Therefore, I can't see Charles Xavier doing it. Absolutely fair. Uh, as, as, as muscular as he is, like, Amelia is also sexy in the way that, like, it's, this is just such a 90s comic, it feels like, in terms of the art, like, all the men look like that. All the women were as, like, sexy as Amelia is in this, like, lingerie that she goes into the pool in. Like, it's, it, it's ridiculous, but it's also... This is kind of just what they looked like at the time. Yeah. We do like and reading yet, about pretty people, absolutely. And yet we have this great intro where it's like Stan in the bullpen and it's just like the old days where he's going to, you know, crack jokes about the artists and the writers and how bad he pays them. And there are um, there are Marvel books like this from the very earliest days. Like I, I feel like Stan was doing these jokes about himself as like this slave driver within the first like five issues of Spider-Man. Oh yeah. And yeah. he, and he would, those speaking of getting to the end of like 24, 26 pages, those guys would have like two pages of a book or it would be a, an in joke about him calling Steve Ditko and having a knockdown drag out fight about some dispute they were having. And then they would do it again, like three issues later. And so even though this is a much more advanced uh, stage of Marvel and comic books generally, I do really like how they brought back this kind of like revi this revival of the bit, basically. And then we get into the actual story. 
Well, there's there's a book called Stan and Jack Nuff Said. Uh, I'll bring it up on the pod more in the future that I've read. And it, it analyzes a lot of their relationship. And Stan very much created this public persona of him as this kind of punchy ha 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 guy. And whenever they'd give public interviews, Stan would, they'd get asked a question. Stan would give like a five paragraph answer. And then Jack Kirby would be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> there was such a, he, he was so overwhelming that there was no room for anyone else. And they, they really pull on that in this comic book. And I, I mean, personally, I kind of like for me, my favorite thing about reading this issue was the Stan Lee stuff, uh, just because it's very nostalgic and it kind of reminds me, reminded me of reading comics when I was this age. And, you know, this was pre-internet or very early on in the Internet life, lifespan or access, access to it. Uh, so there was not the accessibility to the creators in the way that we have now where you can just go on and read people's tweets and, you know, know exactly what they're thinking or their process, like we were talking about earlier. And this would be like, as a kid, my only window into seeing what the inside of like Marvel's work process would be like. So I would have like really eaten up and really believed the idea of like, wow, that office must be so crazy and wild and <laughs> Stan Lee walks through and he looks over you while you draw. Like, I would have really bought into that. And it just made me, like, kind of remember all those kid memories again. Yeah, like the episode where Bart goes to the Mad Magazine offices in New York City <laughs> and he, he looks through the door and you see, like, uh, the spy versus spy guy and Alfred E. Newman comes out and they... The, the funny thing about it is, by this time, we know Marvel wasn't like this. And we know Marvel's not like this today. And in reality, Marvel kind of was never like that. But they, at very least, were still trying to do this. They were, while Stan was still around, he still had the power to, to, to live that myth about himself. He, remember, he was doing walk-ons in the movies? That's kind of what this is. Yeah, yeah. He was in yes. all those Marvel movies for like a one cameo. And uh, this, you know, I, the great thing about having made it all up and having it be your house of ideas, Stanley, was that you could just have this whenever you wanted. So, I, so John, if you're willing, will you take the next five pages for us? Tell us yes. what happens next. Um, so, uh, okay, we left off at him laying, uh, laying face down, uh, face up in the pool. Oh, not face down in the pool. Although I might I be open to that. that. <laughs> uh, face up in the pool. Uh, Amelia has come to the poolside and she gently sings to him because he is ignoring her. And I don't know about you guys, but like she says, Charles, can you hear me? And I just, it's the 60s. I immediately go into Tommy. Tommy, can you hear me? Can you feel me near you? Um, but, and like Charles like snaps at her uh, and he's kind of really going through it apparently at this time. And she's poking fun at him she comes off so charming in these pages i don't know about you guys but like she is the only character i came out of this being like i love her she's um, gorgeous enough that i might go straight for her in this story good lord she's um, she's delicious uh, and then she eventually jumps down into the pool with him and kind of continues talking to him being like i came here because i believe in you and if i was not um and if I didn't do that, I would still be Amelia Vaught, Red Cross nurse, which is fun because I didn't know anything about her. So, um, and then they she uh, she met Charles when he after he got paralyzed and he was stuck in the hospital and she became his nurse and they didn't know each other were mutants. 
and then later learn it. So again, that's the story told in Uncanny X-Men 309. That's where you get their backstory. It's it's a great issue. And she's like, try. she's like, I came here to try to convince you to not, she's like, I love you, but also what you're trying to do is too much. Uh, and she swims up with him and then she's like, what are you, uh, He's like, if we just waited, and she goes, waiting for what? And then he, they turn dramatically in like the most soap opera-y way possible with these big dewy eyes and go, him. And then smash cut to space where Magneto is like Dragon Ball Z powering up and in full, you know, helmet and cape gear. Uh, and we get this big long pair uh text boxes of you know, just the power of him and who he is and his and his life. Uh, and we find that, that he is on the dark side of the moon, hiding out in an asteroid. And there are two people watching him and discussing him. Uh, and we pull out to reveal that that is Wanda and Pietro watching their father, quote, what I, you know, father at the time. We'll say that. Um, and... Uh, they are having a discussion about whether or not they believe in his vision. Uh, you know, Wanda is into it. Pietro is skeptical and is kind of like, you know, he's mad. And she's like, no, with everything he has experienced, you know, he's not mad at all. In fact, it's a personally, like, it's a reasonable reaction to everything that he's been going through. Um, and then Magneto comes in and is basically yeah uh if only it was as simple as that as if it were a cloak i could div uh divest myself of and a chalice of bitter wine i might refuse no children my life is more than lashing out at the world it is more than grappling with the ghost of my past indeed all that i do is for the future our future and for the good of all mutants so they're really just laying out their philosophies both of them as deeply uh, like as quickly as possible very efficiently in this in these pages i i'm fascinated by the comparison of the upbringings of professor x and magneto and how vastly different they were uh, i want to read that that big splash page of magneto you talked about i want to read yeah, just yeah, a yeah, couple of scott libdell's uh, uh text boxes here he says as a child eric lencher also heard voices in the dead of night but they were sounds he could hear through thin metal walls beside what passed for his bed Cries coming from off in the distance, angry cries of defiance, the barely whispered hush of a prayer, the sickening shout of final fatal commands, then nothing. But unlike his one-time friend, Charles Xavier, Eric had no place to go, no place to drop off his fear, his frustration and rage, his pain. He had no choice but to keep these feelings within his heart until there was no more him at all. There was only Magneto. Something else that Lobdell gives us that I don't know that any other writer has quite explained is one of the questions people would ask is why didn't Magneto's powers activate when he was in the concentration camps? Because for most mutants, uh, it happens when you're 13. And there's an illusion, I think it's in Uncanny X-Men 304 that Lobdell says Magneto was sick in the camps. He had a version of syphilis that blocked him from getting his powers. And it wasn't until, I, I mean, he used them unknowingly a few times if you read Magneto Testament, but it wasn't until Anya was killed, that moment of tragedy, where he's losing one more person after finding hope that his powers finally activate. And now he's building fucking asteroids in space. So he's clearly a, an extraordinarily powerful character, but uh, but he's so grumpy here. <laughs> They're like mixing 60s megalomaniacal Magneto with his curling fingers and his dark, dark glowers. Uh, great, great job, John. Thank you. 
everybody's kind of grumpy in this. I mean, they have reason to be grumpy. Like it is there, but like, but like, yeah, Xavier's kind of he's he's pissy in this uh, in these books in these pages. He's kind of not super nice to Amelia, who I immediately defended. But maybe it's because she's like just this like the way she's drawn in the nineties and she's in this negligee with this gauzy Cape and she's getting down into the water, which immediately jumping into the water in your full lingerie. That's, that's, you know, queen behavior. It's camp. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, yes, yes. She's again, she's delicious (laughs) in this this episode. Uh, uh, Phil, will you take us through the next five pages? Tell us what happens next. Yes, so we've had this introduction of Magneto to uh, Pietro and Wanda, and um, Pietro is not pleased about being spoken to in this way by Magneto, and uh, he says, I have had more than enough of your posturing, old man, and uh, he threatens Magneto with the not only mutant abilities that he has, but that he and Wanda have practiced working on together and implies that uh, if they become displeased with Magneto, he's in a position to threaten them. And Magneto basically sloughs it off and says, nope, I'm not scared of you, Pietro. Uh, get ready, get your get your socks and shoes on. We're gonna get go down to earth pretty soon here. Um, and uh, then they do. And now all of a sudden we have this uh, corner that we turn in the book when all of a sudden over an establishing page, we have three long panels and one big panel. Here we are at Auschwitz. And it's unmistakably Auschwitz. It's not a uh, general uh, concentration camp. It's not a kind of uh, model of one. Here's a gate that says Arbeich macht frei, uh, which we know from history was a real artifact and a real place uh, in which the Holocaust transpired. And um, now we go to the next page. And here's Amelia and Professor Xavier. They're already here. Um, Professor Xavier has asked her to teleport them here, even though no one has arrived. And she says, well, are you sure that he's going to be here? And he says, yes, uh, I know uh, Magneto almost as well as I know myself. And then when we turn the page, in fact, here they are. They Now, it's not clear to me how exactly they have transported themselves down to Earth, whether um, there's some kind of teleportation that's taken place or they're standing on some kind of like hover platform. Um, Magneto, Magneto had ships, but he also had asterisk technology. I think it could be either one. Um, Magneto and Pietro and Wanda have arrived, and Amelia's like, damn, is that Magneto? And Charles is like, yep. Uh, and she says, how powerful is he? And he says, as powerful as he needs to be. Very Delphic answer. Um, stay here. And then Professor Xavier gives a very 90s X-Men uh, little statement. Magneto floats down from his platform, and he says, hello, Eric. Nice helmet. Uh, Don't change the subject, Xavier. Magneto begins, and he uh, begins to upbraid Professor Xavier because he wanted to have his um, visit or his moment at Auschwitz, and uh, Professor Xavier has gone there to to intercept him to try and persuade him to alter his path. Um, And this next page, which is, let's see, 16 or 17, is fantastic in the book because it's one, two, three, four, five, six panels, very tight on the two of them. And they have some great dialogue in which they give their statements. And then we end on a sixth panel in which uh, Professor X in his wheelchair is facing to the right against Magneto standing. Uh, his contrast against Magneto's cape is very effective and they say nothing. They're looking in opposite directions. They have a different vision. 
and uh, they're not going to be able to agree. And then uh, after that beat, the story picks up. And one of the one of the things that makes these comic books uh, a little bit strange to look at from our perspective today, but also great, is that here are two fictional characters uh, who we know from children's collateral cartoons and comic books at uh, one of the most, if not the most horrific single place in the world, uh, talking about made-up stories uh, that have nothing to do with anything, and yet at the same time, with a different part of our brain, we can process an incredible resonance and an incredible power about this story and these encounters. And so it's just very strange. It, it just hits when you're a grown up and you're living through our times as they are uh, in a very different way than it might have when we read this issue when it came out, um, or even maybe in the way that the creators intended for it to take place. Um, we're recording this show a few days after the anniversary of the shootings at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. A former colleague of mine, uh, her family is a member of that congregation. They all came out of it okay, but there were a number of people in Pittsburgh who lost their lives in that shooting. Uh, we're recording this episode at a time in which anti-Semitism and open anti-Jewish rhetoric is this scourge, this terrible phenomenon in American public life. And so is it constructive or is it frippery to have a, a story like this, as there, as there were many stories over the history of the X-Men about the Holocaust, about persecution, about Jews? Um, or is it appropriate? Is it, is it cautionary? And I, I think it's I think it's appropriate and cautionary. And it, it would have been great to have the generation that's coming up now that's living through this the way we are, um, see these stories and think about this in the same way. Um, does it cheapen it? Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, is it? how do you respond to looking at a comic book and having fun thinking about the X-Men, but then having to deal with this material, which is not fictional? It's not a, it's not a fake planet. It's not like an alternate dimension. Auschwitz is a real place. The Holocaust was real. And these creators have decided to make it be a real substantive part of the story. I want to delve into that, Phil, but I, I, I want to take everything you just said and let's let's wrap it in a ball and hold it here for just a second. Uh, Joseph, let me have you conclude the issue review. And then I want to delve into a couple of these topics uh, for a few minutes. Okay, so I think we're on page 17 or 18 at this point. 16, 17, yeah. <laughs> So they have uh, had their little back and forth, uh, mostly with Charles kind of pointing out uh, that Eric should know better based on his experience and that his uh, longing for mutant supremacy is not dissimilar to what he experienced as a child. Um, and then we get to a point which is sort of uh, an odd comment from Magneto, which is that, um, you know, look at you, Charles, look what you've become. You're confined to a wheelchair. You can't even perform mundane tasks, a very ableist comment which was, um, I, I didn't really know how to take that comment. Uh, it was kind of a weird one, just, um, I don't know if it was just to belittle him or just to be cruel. Um, but of course I'm reading this with a 2022 <clears throat> lens, of course. So we look at things a little differently. Um, and they kind of, it's a little bit of a uh, pissing match between the two where Eric kind of says to him, you know, I should kill you here and now. Uh, you understand that I could do that. And Charles turns back and says, well, you could, but I could reach into your mind and change it or turn it off. I could shut it down, but I wouldn't. So it's a sort of like back and forth of like, you know, we could stop each other, but we respect each other too much, I guess, to do that. Um, on that page, very quickly, as, 
on that page very quickly, there's there's a, a just a very quick panel where Magneto leans down and puts his hands into the dirt and pulls up yes. the soil as he says all of this. And that's really poignant for me. We'll get to that in a second. Go ahead. Um, and as Magneto leaves, they sort of mock each other where it says, this is not over, in quotes, Professor X. And then in quotes, Magneto, but hasn't even begun. So it sort of feels like they're kind of mocking each other a little bit or maybe just foreshadowing. Um, Amelia, who... I agree with John is sort of, for me, my favorite part of this issue. And she's someone I never cared about or really thought I've never, I kind of forgot she existed until we reread this. Um, and I really enjoyed her. So she kind of approaches him of just saying like, you two are so much alike, you know, this is madness. Uh, you're two of the most powerful mutants on the planet. You should be working together. Um, which Magneto rejects and him and, Wanda and Pietro float off on some unknown base, metal base that they go back to uh, their little planet. Um, and Amelia questions, why was he here? Why did he come to this place? Um, which Charles explains that he is uh, using his past. <clears throat> he wanted to experience his past as a way to sort of forge the world the way he wants it to become. Um, and that despite everything he's forgotten over the years, he's sort of... Uh, still pushing to uh, uh, this goal of his, um, you know, destined to repeat these mistakes, I guess. Um, and then we get back to Stanley in the office, um, breaking the fourth wall, talking to the reader. Uh, the artist is asleep now with the drawing board, um, <laughs> to which Stan says, lucky guy, I wish I had a drawing board. Um, and he sort of like exits out of the building and says, you know, see you next issue, Excelsior. Uh, when Magneto goes back to the space station, he leaves behind uh, Xavier and Amelia on the ground. He returns and then he drops the dirt that he took from Auschwitz and drops it into Asteroid M. And the, the narration here is Professor X talking to Amelia. He says, what Eric was doing was taking a reminder of the world the way it was and using it to forge the world the way he wants it to become. I pray I'm wrong that the Eric Lenscher I knew still lives within the man called Magneto, that despite everything he's forgotten over the years, everything he's managed to push to the farthest reaches of his embattled, embittered soul, he knows that a man who does not remember the sins of his past is destined to repeat them. One of the interesting, and, and Phil, here's where we'll take everything you just said and bring it back for a moment as we're commenting on this. One of the things that's fascinating by this is the reinterpretations of these philosophies. When you start in the 60s books, it's very much Xavier is the hero. He wants to create a peaceful coexistence with humans uh, and a safety for mutants by fighting evil mutants, policing them, putting them away and in jail. And Magneto is very much portrayed as the evil guy. But even in his earliest stories, he's taking over a country that's anti-mutant and claiming it as a space for mutants. He's building a station, a, a station in space. He's going to the United Nations and demanding that mutants be given their own country. These are all stories from the 60s. When that doesn't work, he lands in the savage land and tries to create his own race of mutants. And, and, and again, it's very much portrayed as you must serve me, I'm your master. But there's this indelible idea of homeland for him, of this space he's trying to create. When we go back to the comparisons with David Ben-Gurion, who was the guy that was willing to follow all the rules and make compromises, and Menachem Begin, who drew very hard lines, I will fight you, I will go to jail if I have to, but I will not sink to your level kind of thing. The difference in philosophies here as they play out in Charles and Eric are fascinating. Charles, when you look at the layout of Auschwitz as the scene of the confrontation, it's brilliant and uncomfortable as a storytelling device, 
But this is literally the scene or the, or the space where Magneto saw it. millions of people slaughtered right in front of him. As Xavier is in the same space saying, you're using this as an excuse to become Hitler, which is a very uncomfortable kind of privileged thing. Now, in the 80s, when Claremont is delving into the Magneto story a lot, he's trying to give Magneto more of a hero story. And he's saying, uh, you know, Magneto is going to ally himself with Xavier. He becomes the headmaster to the school. He's trying to to seize on his friend's dreams. And one of the reasons Claremont left the book in the 90s is because they wanted to make Magneto a quote unquote bad guy again. But the first story they do when they're telling that is forming the team of acolytes, who are people who are saying Magneto is our savior. He's the only one that's going to save us. And that idea of the mutant homeland gets driven home again and again. First, they form Avalon. Then they form Genosha, right? And then Genosha gets slaughtered. And then they try to, I don't know, you, you'd bring this up to the modern books where they're allies now, and you put it on Krakoa, where they're kind of trying to align their dreams. The reinterpretation of all of this is really, really interesting. And then what Phil just said about this idea of we're living in this time where anti-Semitism is alive and well and being used as a political platform almost. Uh, and uh, these stories are reinterpreted again and again based on the era that they're being told in. So there's a long, long set of paragraphs for me. Let me hear some of your thoughts on the reinterpretations of these ideas of what their dreams are and how they're portrayed here. Um, again, I, I'll, I'll go first. First, I just want to say that panel that Phil covered of the two of them in facing opposite directions is my favorite panel in the book. I think it is the best piece of art out of the book. I, I love it. It's very powerful. It works so well. Um, but then I kind of wanted to go back to Phil's question about, you know, how we feel about art and these kind of like, you know, fake characters being used in these like real si situations that are very big and broad. And I think like one thing to, uh, we always have to think about is that like, yeah, like we know this history, but there's always a new generation of kids that are coming up that don't know this history yet. And they have to learn it from somewhere. And yeah, like when I was reading X-Men and, you know, knew about Magneto being a Holocaust survivor, I had been taught about the Holocaust, but being taught history in school is still fairly disconnected. and. I didn't, you know, I grew up very Catholic, so I did not grow up with like, you know, family that had survived the Holocaust or any of that. So I didn't have that very human connection aspect to, uh, to it beyond just the knowledge and empathy that I was taught as a child. Uh, but then having that, these characters that you can kind of attach to and see their point of view has that way of teaching you other people's points of view and why this is important uh, and now do, do they do it perfectly every time probably not i'm most likely not i'm guessing but you know a lot of these stories were people from these backgrounds kind of working through those traumas and ideas so like i don't know i think it's uh i think not only should we have stories like this, it's important. I think it's a good teaching device. It's a good, you know, even just teaching empathy, learning to empathize with characters that aren't from your point of view is so, so important for young people because uh, kids don't have a lot of empathy. No, I agree with you. I agree completely. And and I, I also think um, the thing that throws, the only thing that throws me off about this spe specific issue is the weird 
turn that it takes where at the beginning and the end, we're yucking it up with Stan. And then we have this incredibly important and serious content in the middle. I, if I were the editor, I might've counseled them to move the Stan stuff and treat it in a different way or treat this material in a different way and have more of a consistent tone through the book as opposed to taking these turns. Uh, but like I we're silly, we're is. silly. Look how serious. No, we're silly yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's so it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit off-putting, uh, but it also reminds me of something else, which is we, we all talked earlier in the show about how important comics have always been and the comics we read as kids. And one of the things this issue made me think of was reading Mouse as a Kid by Art Spiegelman when it came out in trade paperbacks. And that comic has continued to endure and continue to be controversial for all these reasons right up through our lifetimes, including this year, when there was another big flap because school districts around the country started to ban it. And they were not banning it because they were upset about the subject matter because kids were still being taught about it. They were banning it because Spiegelman does not leave audiences with this like moral uh, lesson and the suffering that the story describes as he's put it many times is not ennobling, uh, which is a very Christian idea. It's kind of a, a very like positive spin to be able to put on an ordeal like that suffered by his parents, which he describes. And that aspect made people so angry that they didn't want kids to read it. And I guess the place that I would land with this book and that and many others is the kids need to read it clearly. And I read it as a kid. Many of us read it as a kid. Many of us read these comics as a kid. And the degree to which it's helped helping not only impart those lessons you were talking about a minute ago, but instilling those senses of empathy about other people and people's different journeys and the stories uh, that we're all living downstream of, it's ultimately constructive. Joseph, any thoughts? I, for me, I think this is something I've always loved about the X-Men was that it felt like it could happen in the real world, um, that it didn't kind of shy away from certain things and sort of almost like rewrote history a little bit. Um, so I've always liked that aspect of it. And yeah, I think especially looking at the world where we are right now, these are stories that need to be told and um, things that people want to deny or pretend haven't existed or is not a problem or promote. Um, so... You know, I think they're important to the story. And I just I think of like that first opening scene of like the first X-Men movie where you see Eric sort of like breaking the gate, like how powerful that is. And um, and I think that's why Magneto is a villain that like has stood the test of time because you do sympathize with him. You feel this, uh, you feel something for him, even though he has at times been an asshole. Um, but it's because we know this backstory and we see this about him that you kind of connect with him. Um, so I don't know, I, I was very thrown off by like the opening and closing of this book and like what was in the middle. Um, but I actually really, I thought it was a great story that was just sort of like bookmarked in a weird way at the front of the bed, at the end. When we have a white privileged guy who is the Xavier here, taking a Holocaust survivor and comparing his actions to Hitler in a concentration camp, there's something so... Whew, about that. And it sounds like an argument that a white privileged American guy would make, right? But there's so much more complexity because Hitler is someone who organized a whole political party around hate. And Magneto's never been that guy. Magneto's been about mutant preservation, not about cruelty, not about mass murder of people who are innocent. He doesn't slaughter humans. He wants to protect mutants. And there's a very different thing. 
When you add the Moira stuff to this as well, we also have two men who have seen what can happen to mutants. They've seen them wiped out in other timelines based on her memories. And Xavier is basically saying, when you add the context, I'm willing to play the long, slow game and see what happens. And Magneto is saying, I am not. I will do whatever it takes to protect our people. And there's a division there that's really fascinating that when you start interpreting it from a 2020 lens, Magneto looks like a hero here and Xavier does not. It's a, it's a fascinating construct. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think you mentioned like uh, Charles' perspective of like a white male perspective. He's always kind of been a, a jerk, Xavier. So, <laughs> you know, that's not that surprising. He's always kind of come from that perspective. But yeah, I think it it's interesting in the way that like, Charles is not very likable, especially when he's talking to Amelia. Um, and I love that she sort of like teases him with it. Like you think you're such a big deal, you know, come back to earth a little bit. Um, I kind of enjoy that Magneto and Amelia kind of put him in his place a little bit and kind of um, told him what was up. It's, I have issues with Charles sometimes. <laughs> this is why I elected to join the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Because <laughs> he's just a lot. He is a lot to deal with. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I would only chose uh, I I would only join the X Men because I was a good kid who did what I was told, and I was just like, well, you've given me rules, and I know the rules must be right because they were given to me. Yeah, uh, but uh, as an adult coming back to the X Men, who had only been reading, uh, like you know, watching the cartoon and uh, evolution and and all of that stuff and the movies learning that professor xavier is actually kind of shitty and wrong a lot um is the same equivalent of like when you're a kid and you realize your parents aren't always right you're just i get to have that experience as an adult and that's kind of fun um but uh yeah oh sorry I was going to say, if you've ever been to Auschwitz or even the Jewish Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., or even if you've just read Magneto Testament, that five issue series, and you look at what this character went through there and you know what it feels like to be there, then you have Xavier calling Magneto Hitler in that space. <laughs> the other the other thing that really stands out here, too, and I don't think this is an intentional part of the story, is the Xavier and Magneto have no room for anyone's philosophies but their own. Amelia is an inconvenience to Charles. You are here to support me or you can leave, which she eventually does, and she joins Magneto's cause. Magneto does not listen to Pietro and Wanda as they express their concerns or frustrations. As you do as you're told and remember that I rescued you. Now shut up and do, do as I say. And these two men's egos are so massive. Uh, we're now seeing an era of storytelling in Krakow where they're exploring that a little bit. Like, here's these two old men who formed our country, and now the youth are trying to reclaim it and make it into something more special, which is a fascinating philosophy as we're leaving kind of the baby boomer generation and seeing youth take on a new interpretation of what the future is going to look like. Uh, so there's some interesting interesting thoughts there as well uh, that crossed my mind. Any Any thoughts there? Well, I'll just say that I, the sort of change, you know, them now having Krakoa and having the two of them come together to do this is sort of uh, in contrast to what Charles is saying here, which I guess we can all know because it's been retcon, whatever. Um, I'm just thankful when I read the current books, I love the moments where Emma and Mystique and Destiny are just like those two 
white assholes. Like we're just gonna <laughs> you're like they have their own thing going on. We're gonna do what we need to do in the background to keep our eyes on them. So I love that like right now I know there's a bunch of characters that sort of feel that way, but like I feel like Emma and Mystique are the ones that are really like, we don't trust them. We're gonna keep an eye on things and kind of work in the background, which is needed with these two uh egomaniacs. We need more women. <laughs> <laughs> in control absolutely um i mean so like i i find the like them not being able to accept any other point of view i think it like to me that reads for these two characters as like you know resilience and strength in their point of view and like is honorable in its own way uh, and like I, th I think of that in contrast. Not to bring it back to Hank McCoy, but I'm going to bring it back to Hank McCoy because, like I said, I th I thought a lot about him. And I'm I, like, uh, but um, like one of the things that I think is interesting about him is his inability to accept that he is wrong. And uh, I, but for him, I don't think that that is a virtue or like a strength in his in his point of view. It's actually a deep insecurity because the only thing he has of value to himself is his mind. So he can't. So like it, to me, like where his is very selfish and very like, you know, they, these two are just trying to give out to the world because they're doing what's best. And I find that just uh, what they think is best and what needs to be done. And I think that that is, uh, um, you know, it, it is what is inherently so compelling about these characters. They just kind of keep rotating around each other. Like, a, like, you know, two stars, it's the it's the whole X-Men franchise built on their backs because that's where it starts. I think it's fascinating. I love that we can get uh, thirsty and nerdy and deeply intellectual all in the same space and kind of weave this together. Every time I record one of these podcasts, I leave just kind of chewing on the conversation for a long time. And then I go back and look at the book again and think like, okay, we can spend hours talking about each one of these characters and their relationships with each other. Uh, it's it's a fascinating thing to sit uh, with these uh, intelligent and uh, talented nerd friends of mine. So thank you all for being here. I appreciate you. I have one last question, Chad. Yeah. Um, the stuff with Stan Lee, I kind of assumed that, that was part of this like flashback, this minus one initiative that each like probably each issue of the like that was released had like a Stan. Part. You're correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, I guess my question to the panel is, do you think it would have been better if they just, like, they had the stuff at the beginning, but then did not end with Stan Lee? Because I think go the fun going into it is okay, but then when you see, like, you know, Magneto dropping the, like, the dirt from Auschwitz onto the ground, and then back back to like hey true believer it's just that is where the shock is but like it's a little the, jarring yeah but the going into it is pretty like 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 that felt gradual to me well the other interesting I... the other interesting piece here and and we don't have time to delve into this a lot but this flashback story is inserted in between two other issues right it, it, it takes place between x-men volume 265 and 66 which is the Operation Zero Tolerance story, which is where the government has weaponized Sentinels to capture and round up mutants, basically. And we'll, we'll get into that far in the future, but to take this look back when that story is being told in the present was, was also a fascinating break. 
Joseph or Phil, any thoughts there? I wouldn't have counseled them to treat it in this way. That was the one thing that I would have done differently. Um, I would have preferred a different stand stick uh, in a different stand issue. And I might have just had a big panel at the beginning of this and then just gotten right into it. Um, but I would have kept Stan and I would have kept the story. I just would have uh, spaced it out a little different. Absolutely fair. Yeah, I think it's just the tone. I think it could have been done just a little differently, but I don't know. It, it does disrupt things a little bit or kind of like shift things too drastically. So I think if his tone was just different, but I guess that's kind of Stan, right? He just drops into a story. doesn't really make sense. You know, his scenes in the movie are often just so shoehorned in. So this kind of just works. <laughs> Just a reminder of where we came from. Well, gentlemen, thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. I uh, I hope you had a great time today recording with me. I uh, I always have such a blast and it's great to get to know new people and uh, new talents. So I'm thrilled to have spent this time with you. Thanks for your time and talents today. As we are wrapping up, let us know where uh, we can find you online. And if you'd like to plug anything, recognizing we're releasing this episode on November 13th, uh, uh, this is a good time to do so. Uh, let's go in the same order we started with. We'll go Joseph, John, and then Phil. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it was very nice to meet you at FlameCon. Um, but most of my stuff is on Instagram, um, the cesspool that is Instagram. Uh, but uh, my Instagram is J. Uh, G-I-A-M-P-I-E-T-R-O. And there is a link tree there uh, for my Patreon where I do exclusive pinups. Uh, I do a poll every month so you can vote on what I draw. Uh, and then I create exclusive things for you. Um, that is really all. I kind of um, maybe have a print sale for the holidays. We'll see. But uh, hopefully I will see some people in FlameCon 2023. Wonderful. Thank you for being here, Joseph. And John. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter for now. Maybe by we're recording this on the the dawn of Elon Musk Twitter. Literally, so October twenty ninth, the news dropped that Elon Musk purchased Twitter today. Yeah, we'll yeah. see what happens. By the time <laughs> it comes out, Twitter might just be a burning pile. Uh, but uh, and thank God I'll be off of it. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, I'm at Vox the Devil, V O X the Devil, uh, on all of those things. And yeah, I post artwork and hopefully more comics soon. And I'm actually getting more back into physical art lately. So that's just maybe a tease of something to come. <laughs> Yay. Uh, it's so good to see you again, John. Thank you for being here. And then, uh, and then Philip. I am uh, on Twitter. I lived on Twitter until this milestone, and then we'll see what happens going forward, uh, what happens at that platform. The account is at Phil Ewing, and uh, it's mostly work stuff, but I did post one drawing one time, uh, which I did of Babstar's Batgirl. I was trying to get Babstar's attention at the time. She did not acknowledge me, <laughs> so I'm going to stick with Marvel in the future. Wonderful. And uh, I, I, I I will plug my Twitter account. I'm still chewing on what's going to happen for me too. I'm going to give it a little time, but you can find Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP, like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Uh, right after this episode, the next couple are going to feature more people I met at FlameCon. I built all these great friendships and relationships. So in our next episode, we're going to have two educators, Michael Elliott and Justin Hall, and uh, and super Polaris fangirl, Anya Prosseron. We're going to be uh, delving into X Factor Minus One, which is a very tragic story about Alex Summers in his youth. 
the uh, the Patreon episode we're releasing right around this time. I will have just put out an episode on the family of Jean Grey uh, with uh, with my friend Stephanie Nina Pizzarillos. Uh, it's uh, sad and resonant, and I uh, I hope you enjoy what we're doing there as well. So thank you, everybody. Uh, I had a great time today. We will see you back here next time on Grandma Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.